and paupers, sons and daughters, kneel at the throne. and winners, saints and sinners, one day we'll see His face, and we'll all bow down. Kings will surrender their crowns, and
Some years ago, uh, and I, I've done it many years since then, but this is a particular year that I'm, I'm remembering, I went to a convention in Indianapolis, and at that point in time, they had extra housing at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And so we stayed on the 12th floor uh, in a dorm room of a dorm on the uh, university campus there. And um, you were allowed to put six people in these dorm rooms. There, were, there was a little bedroom that had two beds in it. Um, and then there was another little bedroom that had two beds in it. And by beds, I mean basically small cots. Um, and then there, were, there was another bedroom uh, which was supposed to have two beds in it. And then there was a bathroom. Uh, with a shower in it, no, no, uh, with a toilet and a shower and a little countertop that was maybe about two feet wide that had a sink mounted in it. And we didn't know exactly what we were getting into until so we got there or whatever. And we got there and there were six of us. And so there were two beds in one bedroom and two beds in another bedroom. By that I mean little cots. And there were two, there were supposed to be two beds in the third bedroom, but there wasn't. And we went down to the desk and said, hey, there's no beds in our third bedroom. And we've got six people in our room. Uh, and they said, well, we'll see if we can move you to a different room. But the problem is the entire dorm is booked. Everybody has decided to stay here for this convention. And it was cheap. Uh, like, I think we paid maybe $25 a night per person. And so it was very inexpensive. And, um, and we're like, well, you know, we brought, they told you bring extra bedding if you, you know, wanted to, comforter, sleep bag, that kind of thing, because there wasn't any bedding. And so we thought, well, we brought sleep bags, so we just sleep on the floor. So come about 3 o'clock in the morning... Uh, we were playing a game, and we had decided to use that little room that didn't have any beds in it because it really wasn't anywhere else. We're playing this game at like 3 o'clock in the morning. And uh, I had sort of elected myself uh, to be one of the people sleeping in the room that didn't have a bed. And so my sleeping bag's laid out there, and I'm laying on the sleeping bag, and we're playing this game. And the, this is the thought that I had. I said to myself, it's getting about time we should go to bed. It's getting late. We've got things to do in the morning with this convention. It's getting late. We really should go to bed. And I thought to myself, well, I kind of already am in bed. I'm laying on my sleep bag. And I thought to myself, you know, it's not very comfortable. This is not a very comfortable bed. It's a tiny carpet. It's carpet about like this, no pad, sleeping bag, so no cushion, no air mattress. You know, it's not very comfortable. And I said, so I'm not going to sleep very good anyway. And so I decided at that moment in time, I may as well play a little while longer, you know, play till 4 or 5 in the morning because I'm not going to get very good sleep anyway. And then... It's not a very good plan. No, it was not a good plan. It was not a good plan. I was dead tired the next day. In fact, I fell asleep playing a game the next day about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, but then I say, oh, if you don't have a good place to rest or sleep, you are not as inclined to go there and rest and sleep. Follow? Okay. Just bear that thought in mind with me, if you would, as we look at these passages of scriptures today. And um, we are working through some difficult text. And the reason it's difficult is because it's summary text. So it's just glossing over the surface of, of some events that happen. And, and when you read it, you might go, well, that's not really a big deal. But to them, it's a huge deal. To the people that this book was written to, it's a huge deal. As I, I focused in on that more heavily last week, and I don't want to do that again today, but I want you to realize that as we read these texts, the reason I'm breaking them down the way they are is because when the people who originally read them, they would have gotten everything that we're learning and seeing by doing the extra work and going back and looking at the actual events that's summarized here, they would have gotten that immediately. They would have said, oh, yeah, we know exactly what that's about. We were alive when that happened. And then we just retold the story just recently. So they would have understood it. Okay? So grab your Bibles with me, if you would. I'm going to read from Joshua chapter 12, again, beginning in verse 1. 
Somebody say amen. Can I get an amen? amen. You know, does, does anybody amen. know what the word amen means? Yeah, so let it be, right? Amen comes from, it's actually from the Greek amen, so it doesn't have an E or an epsilon in it. It has an aota at the end there. It's like a, it looks like a fancy N that sticks down below the line. And so it would be amen, and then in the, it's that we don't really, that's not a comfortable word for us to say, so we say amen, and English goes back to the King James Bible and like that. And amen means so let it be, or let it be so. And so when we read this word, we are saying, okay, amen, God, tell us what's, what it is, Show us what it is and help us be what we're supposed to be in light of these verses. All right, now, here's where we're at. We read the first four last week, and I'm going to read them again. Now, these are the kings of the land whom the sons of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. So I want you to remember, this is when Moses was leading the Israelites, not Joshua. So this is a summary of events that happened during their lifetime, but this is not the leadership of Joshua. It is the leadership of Moses as they're taking the, the lands east of the Jordan what's called the Transjordan lands, or lands east of the Jordan. Okay. Where Joshua 12, 1. Well, we're going to get there, so don't flip past that. We're, we're reading from 1, okay? Now, these are the kings of the land whom the sons of Israel defeated, and, though, and whose land they possessed beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of the Arnon as far as Mount Hermon and all the Arabah to the east, Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon and ruled from Eroer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, both the middle of the valley and the half of Gilead, even as far as the book, the brook Jabbok, and the border of the sons of Ammon. And so that is a report of lands that were conquered, and we're going to continue with it. Now verse 3 should be on the screen. Are we on 3? Oh, the typo. Oh, my goodness. Okay, we probably won't have the verses up there for you. This is why you've got to make sure you bring your Bible to church because Pastor Dan can screw up the text just that easily. All right, but this is where we're at. 12, Joshua 12, 3. Okay? And then we're going to, after that, we'll be going to Deuteronomy 3, 1 through 11, which is what that reference is. But got Joshua instead of Deuteronomy. Anyway, okay, so here we go. And uh, so in verse 3, And the Arabah, as far as the Sea of Chinneroth toward the east, and as far as the Sea of the Arabah, even the Salt Sea, eastward, toward Beth, Jeshimoth, and on the south. And so these are all that, and last week I put up that map, and we're not going to dwell on the map today, but these are all the lands Transjordan. At the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. Before I go any further, notice Pisgah. It's huge. Does anybody know what the major event that will occur on Mount Pisgah is? Before we read about it, or talk about it a little bit later today. Mount Pisgah. Why is that so important? It's the mountain on which Moses goes up to die. Okay? And so this is the mention in the recap. And believe me, when they saw the word Pisgah, they knew what happened there. We would glance over because we haven't read these texts like they lived them. But we, we now ha know Mount Pisgah is the mountain on which Moses died. So we have Moses leading them in the Transjordan conquest. We have them going right up to the foot of Mount Pisgah. Verse 4. And the territory of Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived at Ashtaroth and at, and this word is hard to pronounce from the original, but we would pronounce it if you look just like it, at like Adrei, okay? But it would be in the Hebrew, it's, I think it's more like Adrei. But anyway, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Selakah and all Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Machathites, or Machathites, and Half of Gilead, as far as the border of Sihon, king of Heshbon. You remember him, That's we talked about him last week. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the sons of Israel defeated them 
And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave it to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribes of Manasseh as a possession. Now, real quick, we're not going to dwell on it, but I want you to make sure you remember and understand, okay, Moses is in charge. And who was it that ordained that these tribes would get the lands east of the Jordan? Did God say there will be these, this will be the promised land and they'll get those tribes? No. Moses. Now, was Moses possibly speaking on behalf of God or speaking for God? Did Moses act on behalf of God? Did Moses do pretty much everything that he was doing because it's what God wanted? Sure, absolutely, I'll give you that. But it's Moses that sets that parameter. Previous to that, the promised land goes from, does anybody know where to where, east to west? The east edge is the the Jordan River, right? They part the Jordan River to cross. Remember the priests and all that? We did that whole thing earlier in this book. It's the Jordan River, right? Which runs essentially from uh, the Sea of Galilee to the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea, right? Which is the, one of the lowest points on the earth, the deepest, and, and Bible historians think it may have been where Sodom and Gomorrah once was, and that's why, you know, she was turned into a pillar of salt. You remember that? Destroyed the cities, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so the east border is the Jordan, and the west border is the Mediterranean Sea, and that's how it was laid out when it was prophesied that, they, that the Israelites would come and take the land. Now, this whole thing that's happening on the east side, the Transjordian lands on the east side, this is all happening under the leadership of Moses, not under Joshua. We already know that Moses has been told he would not go, be allowed to go into the land. So they take most, and I'm going to show you that in a second, most of the lands on the east of the Jordan, and then Moses, it says, gives them to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half-tribe of Manasseh as a possession. Okay. Notice in the middle of it, it says that they took all the lands, essentially, and they stopped their conquest, they moved their conquest up to the moment where they were at the slopes of Pisgah, which is that mountain where Moses would do a lot of things, one of which was recount everything. The book of Deuteronomy is almost all probably written and talked about. It's the speeches of Moses that took place around Pisgah. Okay? And it's also where Moses would go up to die. So to understand the major events here, we already had uh, Sihon, and the only other thing that's in here that's really big that we wouldn't necessarily know about already is Og, and it was right in the middle. It says, And the territory of Og, the king of Bashan, and the remnant of the Rephim, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Adri. Okay? And then it goes into the lands that he ruled over after that. So Og is huge, and they knew all about Og. They fought Og. They defeated Og. And that's a really big deal. So we need to know about Og to understand what they're saying in this text. So take your Bibles now and flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 3. And we're going to get Moses' summary. Remember, he was in charge of the Israelites at that time. We're going to get Moses' summary of the events surrounding Og. Okay, and then we're almost done with this text, these texts, and I'll quote a few others, and we'll read a couple of short ones, but then we'll be uh, deciphering mostly the word. Okay, it's Deuteronomy chapter 3, and we're beginning in verse 1. Then we turned up. Okay, so what's the then? This is after the great defeat of Sihon, right? Remember that. And all the cities were taken, all that. We kind of read that from Deuteronomy chapter 2 last week. Then we turned up and went up the road to Bashan. And so if you're looking at the map, which I don't have the map up there for you, but the Jordan would be on the middle, and then these are the countries that go up the right-hand side of the Jordan. And the Bashan is a huge region that's up on the upper right. Okay? And so Moses, we, is, they were up pretty much at the edge of going into the promised land, but Moses is not going into the promised land. Right? But God's already told him he's not going to be allowed to cross the Jordan River and go in. So instead of going in at that point in time, because God had some other things, they're going to go up toward Bashan. 
tactically, historically, they will say, if you leave this very powerful king, Og, and his armies, which, were, which historians say were one of the most skilled and trained armies in the region, behind you in crossing the Jordan, you have a problem. Okay? So Moses is preparing for Joshua's conquest of the Promised Land by eliminating this very powerful enemy that's behind them. Okay? That's what's actually going on in this text. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, with all his people, came out to meet us in battle at Edrei. But the Lord said to me, do not fear him. This is Moses speaking. The Lord said to me, do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him just as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon who was that king that they sang the songs about that we studied about last week, right? And they have wiped him out completely and his armies and his people and they took his cities, right? So the, the Lord our God delivered Og also, king of Bashan, with all his people into our hand. And we smote them until no survivor was left. Now, Sihon was that opposition that came out against them. They asked, can we just go through your land? We won't cause any trouble. And he's like, no, no, you can't go through. And, and so he brought his full armies out and attacked them, and they crushed him. Now Og was not in their path to the promised land. This is not on the way. But this is somebody that would be left behind them, and he has taken lands in this region before. He has an extremely skilled army, historians say. It's not in the Bible written that way, but historians say his army is extremely skilled, and we're about to see something about him as well. This is not the guy you want at your back while you're beginning a, a, a conquest, all right? It says in verse 4, And we captured all his cities. At that time there was not a city which we did not take from them. Sixty cities, all the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. So he was a powerful individual drawing men for his army from sixty cities. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many unwalled towns. So there's sixty cities, all walled, fortified, bars, gates, etc. Now, these do not have to be giant cities. We're not talking about 20,000 people living there or anything like that. We don't know the population of all the cities. You could have a wall like that and only have four or five hundred. Right? You only need about 50 men. And, and you could be very formidable and have big, tall walls and gates and everything like that. Okay? But even so, even if they were four or five hundred, then that still would be, said 60 cities, that would be 24,000 to 40,000 people, right? And it was probably a lot more than that. So big army, under Og, well-skilled, they say, comes out to defend the land, and they utterly destroy him and take all 60 of his fortified cities plus all the other little cities as well. So it's a huge victory for God. And you could right away draw a, something that we've already seen in Joshua, which is that God is big enough to handle it. Right? You could take a point and say, God is big enough to handle it. He's big enough to handle the, the, the great forces that stand in our way, the skilled forces that know better than we do, even. But that's not where we're going with the text, I don't think. All right, verse 7, and we're almost done with the text. But all the animals and all the spoils of the cities we took as our booty. Thus we took the land at that time from the hand of two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan and the valley of Armon to Mount Hermon. Sidonians call Hermon Sirion, and the Amorites call it Sinir. All the cities of the tableland, and all Gilead, and all Bashan, as far as Selica and Edrei, cities of the king of Og and Bashan. For only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Raphaim. Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead, 
It is in Rabbah of the sons of Ammon. The length was nine cubits, and its width four cubits by ordinary cubit. Okay? So meaning by the ordinary cubit of a man. And how long is that? From the elbow to the tip of the finger, roughly 18 inches. So his bed was nine cubits or 13 and a half foot long. And what's implied, it was that long so he could be comfortable in it. So he was probably 10 to 11 foot tall. And the width of his bed was, what did it say, six? Four cubits, which is six feet, right? So six feet wide, 13 and a half foot tall was his bed. And when Moses was writing that, the bed was still there for, so people could see it. Now, historians have found these things uh, in this region, in Bashan, that are basalt sarcophaguses. I said that word correctly, sarcophaguses. And a sarcophagus is like a, like a coffin, uh, a place where that someone might lay. Uh, and they think, so this could be implying his sarcophagus. Um, and the word there that's in, in, translated in our language, iron, could be translated basalt. Okay, so they think this could be a reference to his basalt sarcophagus. So when he died, they had to have a sarcophagus that was 13 and a half foot long by four foot wide, four, by six foot wide, in order for him to be to comfortably fit in there. This is a big man, and according to this, he is the last of the Rephaim. Now you may remember, as we were studying Joshua a little bit earlier back, that there was a people called the Anakites. And I may be saying that right. I may not be. I don't remember. But anyway, the point is, they were big too. And they're still in the land. And as Joshua goes in and takes over the land, he will wipe them all out from the promised land, but some of them will persist in Philistia and other places, one of whom will eventually be Goliath and will eventually face David. At least that's what we think happened. Okay? And so they were big. But the Rephaim, based on this, they were bigger. So this is the last of a people who were the biggest people, essentially, to ever live that anybody ever knows of. And so Og was a mighty king. He had great prowess and strength and money and a skilled army, not just an army, not just a big army, but a skilled army, and they come out against Israel. And remember, now, if, if we would automatically think if this was Israel taking the promised land, of course God has said that he will do this. So of course he is going to be destroyed and his great army destroyed. But this is not Israel taking the promised land. This is Israel taking the lands Transjordan that will Moses will then give to those other tribes. This is Israel eliminating, under Moses, eliminating someone that will be on their back and extremely dangerous while they do what God has given them to do. And that is significant in and of itself. Okay, just a little bit left. So verse 11, For only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Now we do know, the Bible tells us historically, that there were some kings. And by the way, the original society of the Rephaim was wiped out in a battle that you know about, probably, if you paid attention to the, to the Genesis account of Abraham and his nephew Lot, who went to live in Sodom and Gomorrah. And while he was living there in Sodom in particular, um, some kings rose up and they decided to wipe some people out and then go, come and rave Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot winds up being taken away by those kings, and Abraham gets all his men servants, which are not nearly enough, and they go and take Lot and his servants back from the kings that conquered them. Those kings wiped out the Rephaim. When they, took Lot, when they took Sodom and Gomorrah, they wiped out the Rephaim. That's where the story can be found if you want to go back and read it yourself. Okay? All right, so we know the history, and when they read this in 
uh, Joshua chapter 12, they knew it. And as far as what happened in the life of Moses, they knew it. By the way, when Moses is doing this, as they're approaching Mount Pisgah, how old is he? How old was he when he died? Bible scholars? Moses. Moses. How old was he when he died? Nope. That's, you're thinking Noah. Noah, yeah. Or Adam, maybe. That's a pretty high number. Okay? He was 120. There's a verse at the end of the book uh, where, at a time where Moses was alive that says he was 120 and his eyes and his body were still good. So he didn't die from disease. He didn't die from other health conditions. He was 120 years in his body. So, so as he's leading the Israelites to take this land, as he goes up against Og, right, as they do all of that, he's 120 years old. And his health was still good. And so he could have gone to the promised land, but he's been told he's not allowed to. They conquest right up to the foot of Mount Pisgah, which, as we know, they would have known was where Moses dies. All right. So that being said now, there's really just two things that I want you to see in this text, and then a conclusion that draws them together. And somebody said, what? Not three? No, just two things. All right. So the first thing is, a man's place of rest says something about the man. When we read that he had to have a bed that was 13 and a half foot long and six foot wide, we realize this is a big man. All right? And we also realized that that meant that probably paid, people paid attention to him. I want you to know that if somebody walked in this room right now who was 10 or 11 foot tall, we would have to have a moment's pause when we figured out how somebody just walked in this room that was 10 or 11 foot tall. Because no one in our life, we've never seen a man like that. And elsewhere in the world, people had not seen somebody who was 10 or 11 foot tall. But there in Og, which was the kingdom named after the king Og, and in Bashan, which was the region where Og and other cities were located, in that area, people had seen one. One, exactly one ever in their entire lifetime. One. It was Og. That was it. And King Og needed a bed who was th that was 13 and a half foot long and six foot wide, or a sarcophagus, whichever one it was. And that really says something about him. The place of rest says something about the person who occupies or can occupy the place of rest. So we need to stop and think about for a second what is our place of rest? Is your place of rest your house? Is it your church? Is it your job? Is it your money? If, the pla if your place of rest is your house, does it say about you that you are strong? That you are wealthy? Because, you know, lots of people have houses. Does it say about you that you are smart? Skilled? Capable? What is your place of rest? Well, his said he was big, he was strong, he was wealthy, he was prominent, he was the king, he was respected by many, and he was the last of his kind. Well, that's a lot of statements. I submit to you, in order for our true place of rest to truly speak about us, it can't be a sarcophagus, nor can it be a house, or a job, or an income. How do I know that? Well, I was driving the church van this morning, and I went by a lot. And on the lot was brand new graded topsoil covered over with seed. You know why? Because they just pulled off the rubble of the house that used to be on that lot. It's gone. Well, guess what's going to happen to your house one day? It's going to be gone. You could think, no, I'm going to keep it alive. My ancestors are going to keep it alive. Whatever, you could try all you want to keep the physical places of your life alive. It isn't going to happen. Eventually, it's going to be gone. It may be four, five, ten generations from now. Some houses have lasted a really long time, but they're going to be gone. Jobs, gone. Finances, gone. It's all going to be gone. And so we need a rest. We have a rest, in fact, God, God tells us, that, that transcends that physical stuff. 
And so what is our rest like? And then by connection, what does it say about us? And so if you would flip in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We get there. Somebody want to come flip in my Bible to Hebrews chapter 10? There, it's getting close now. All right, very good. Hebrews chapter 10. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. The author of Hebrews says it this way. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. In other words, so we know that we can go directly to God into the place where God is. By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil... That is his flesh. That's a reference to that curtain that was hanging between the the worship places and the holiest of holy places where God would go and the high priest would go in there once a year and serve and he was the only person allowed in there and they would tie a rope to his feet in case he died while he was in there so they could haul him out because no one would want to go get him out if he did die while he was in there. So they would have a rope tied around his ankles. They could haul him out because the holiest of holy places is a very dangerous place before God. In our Revelation study on Tuesday night, we looked at that and how in heaven, the holiest of holy places that surrounds God has those four creatures singing, holy, holy is the Lord our God, always, always, until that last moment in time where the seal of the seal is opened, uh, the first seal is opened on the scroll that only Jesus can open. We've been looking at that. The holiest of holy places. Now we have the ability to enter in. That entrance was inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance. You know what full assurance is? Full assurance is rest. It's rest from a lot of things. We'll talk about that in a second, but it's rest. Full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So that full assurance of rest that we have, knowing we can go straight into God, says this about us. That our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies are washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So what can we do because we have this rest? We can never give up that which we believe in, no matter what anyone ever does or says to us, through us, by us, around us, on us, in us, whatever. He who promised is faithful. God ordained this rest for us. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we have a rest that is not only ordained by God, but it's a rest that is, the the way to get to the rest that is ordained by God is is Jesus. And flip with me then to Hebrews chapter 4. I know we talked a little bit about these things uh, two weeks ago uh, in a, a sermon I preached on the coming rest, but I'm reiterating them here today and seeing them from a different angle for a certain purpose that you're going to see in a minute. All right? So Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13 says, Therefore, let us fear, fear is not rest, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, so in other words, uh, that God has arranged a way that we can enter his rest through Jesus, that's what we just read about, Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. In other words, if this place of rest has been provided for you, that is, through Jesus and in God's presence, we don't want to come short of that, so let us fear. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. 
For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the reason he swore in my wrath, I shall not enter, or I'm saying he did that because they were unfaithful, stiff-necked people and they wouldn't believe, right? And so that's why they couldn't understand what he was preaching because if they understood, they would enter his rest. And he said, so I, I speak in parables so that you won't understand, so you don't enter my rest. But then after the sacrifice of Jesus and the, and the coming back to life, now it's clear the Holy Spirit has come so we can understand it. So he says, for we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And even in this passage, you shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of the disobedience. So that goes back to the first verse. Let us fear and not be disobedient, lest we fail to enter the rest. That's the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making here. Seven, he again fixes a certain day. Today, he says, saying through Jesus, David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So it wasn't just when they come in the promised land and war subsided that they refound their rest, but he spoke of another day after that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. So we don't have something that we have to do in the rest. Once we're in the rest, there isn't something that you have to do. Let us, therefore, be diligent, so there is something that we need to do, to enter that rest. That's what we need to do lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Two more verses. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from its sight. I'm sorry, from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And that last phrase is key to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So there is a coming rest, and our job, if you will, is not to fail to come into the rest. And that rest, as we saw in the previous verses, speaks of us and the one to whom we owe allegiance. It says we are to be eagerly awaiting his coming. Is it safe to push off your rest? Remember the opening illustration? The rest wasn't looking very good, and so I thought, well, you know, I can push it off a little bit. I just said, that doesn't sound like a good plan, and it wasn't. And there's a lot of reasons why it isn't, right? So the coming rest that's available to us, if, you are, if you're becoming a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're trusting the Lord for your salvation, you need to be diligent to move into the rest. Hebrews was written to those who believed in Christ, largely speaking, and he was encouraging them to move into the rest, accept that Jesus is Lord. Well, what does it look like? Well, we'll get there in a second. It's not safe to push off the rest. If you're pushing it off, you'd be pushing it off because you don't think it's all that much. It's not all that important. It's not going to do all that much for me. But it's going to do everything for you that you actually desire. 
Also, you might be pushing it off as a smaller chance that because you see it's kind of far away across barriers. It's going to be kind of difficult for me to get into the rest. Right? But what did it say? Everybody who hears and believes the word enters into the rest. And so if you're struggling and you're not entering into the rest, then it's because you've not heard and are believing the word. What are the applications of this knowing that we need the rest? All right? So here's some examples. If you have entered into the rest and knowing that you've entered into the rest, number one, you realize you never need to seek revenge. You never need to get back at anybody. You never need to pay anybody what's due them. Because you've already received so much more than any feeling of satisfaction or comfort. You say, well, he treated me that way and I have to do something back or I won't feel, I'll feel like I was abused. I'll feel like my rights were shortened or I wasn't allowed to be free in this situation. I'll, I'll struggle with self-esteem issues. Right? Well, I'm, here's a news flash. Everybody that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is going to struggle with self-esteem issues because their self sucks. Myself sucked before I got saved. That's a fact. And I struggle with self-esteem issues because I wasn't satisfied with myself. Okay? Now, now that you're in Christ, your self-esteem issues is in contrast to the very rest that we're talking about. Because it isn't about you anymore, it's about Him. When God looks at you to see whether or not you're going to go to heaven, He doesn't look at you to see RJ or Tony or Chris. He looks at you to see Jesus. And if He sees Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, cast, if you will, over top of you, you'll go in. And so if you have the righteousness of Jesus, then it's not about your self-esteem issues anymore. You now belong to the one who is master of the universe. You are heir and joint heir with him, more than a conqueror, and your self-esteem issues can be dismissed. You need never seek revenge. You certainly need to never try to earn your salvation. When I was a young Christian, I remember living day in and day out, trying to make up for the first 25 years of my life. Hear me now, you can't. Because the thing that you did before you got saved was enough to send you to hell for an eternity. And so unless you could do good works for an eternity, which you can't, you can't make up for the eternity in hell that you would burn. It's not possible. The time frame is hard to fathom. It is not possible to make up for the little white lie. It's not possible to make up for the manipulations or the sneaking or the stealing or whatever it was that we did. There's no way we can make up for that. There was only way it could, one way it could be paid for. That was through the blood of a perfect sacrifice, which we cannot be. It's Jesus. He's the atoning sacrifice. He's the, the payment for sin or the propitiation. And so that's how it's done. And if you've been saved, you can stop trying to make up for anything you ever did wrong. Here's how you do it. You say, Lord, that was wrong. I'm sorry. I'll try not to do it again. Please help. Cleanse me, heal me, move me forward. Do you have to pray that prayer in order to be forgiven? No, it was forgiven at the moment that you believed. You entered the rest at the moment that you believed the teaching of Jesus. You're already in. Now that you're already in the rest, then you begin to lose it or miss it, as he was cautioning the Hebrews of doing, because they weren't really believing the truth that once you get saved, you're in. And they were still trying to make up for it or they were still trying to have revenge or some of these other things on this list, which I'll go a little quicker. You don't ever need to work to manipulate your situation, even your finances or somebody else. You don't need to work to manipulate because God is in charge and you can submit the control to him. Then once he tells you what to do, you just do what he told you to do and everything will be fine. You don't ever need to strive to control someone else or even to control your own life. You don't need to strive to get control of your own life. By the way, control is an illusion. You're not in control. You're in control just exactly this much. As much as you have wrested control from God, by the way, which means we put your life on a destruction course, or in as much as you've wrested your control from the enemy, Satan, or demons. 
which we can do. In fact, uh, Psalm 8 says that God obtained in babies the ability to make the enemy cease. So from babies, we've had the ability to conquer evil, spirit, evil spirits and demons. From babies. However, we've misused that. We've given our strength over into the hands of Satan. So then we've given up our control. When we try to rest back, whatever portion we rest back, we've got some control. But it's an illusion because at best he's going to make you think you have control so that you won't actually get control through Jesus Christ. You won't actually submit your life to Jesus and let him be in control. So it goes into the hands of Satan and we take a little bit back. We start to feel a little bit better and we'll never get where we actually need to be coming into the rest because of the illusion of control. He's a great illusionist, Satan. You can choose not to defend yourself in the face of persecution. Like the Christians who stood in the Colosseum like this while lions ripped the flesh from their bodies knowing that they would immediately translate it into heaven. The last time somebody said something mean to you, did you immediately come back with something like, I don't appreciate that, or I prefer you don't talk, or did you first pray and say, God, first of all, forgive them for they know not what they do. Secondly, rebuking any evil spirits or demons that led them to do that. I was counseling with a man over the phone this week. He and his wife were... Uh, uh, traveling across the U.S. And, uh, and they've been in physical altercations. They've been arguing. They said that they had arguments that lasted for over an entire day, over 24 hours. They argued for a 24-hour period. And they're, they're failing, struggling in their relationship. They've been married for roughly a couple years. And I said, first of all, I could, I could give you 100 action points. I could tell you, don't do this that you're doing wrong or do this that you're doing right. Let me give you the one the one that comes from Scripture, the one that you need right now, and that is never, ever, 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 no matter whatever, no matter how wrong ever, fight against your wife again. A man cannot fight against himself and win. I've played checkers against myself. I won every game and lost every game. A man cannot fight against himself and win. So instead, decide today to always and always and always engage the evil spirits and demons that are messing with your wife and messing with you. Fight against that which is our enemy, not against yourself, essentially, if you're fighting against your wife. And so if it's your husband, if it's your child, if it's the person, when you are persecuted, follow the example of Jesus. And he said, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he said, it is finished. And some of the people that gambled for his clothes may have later gone on to believe in Jesus Christ and enter into his rest. Can you believe that? After what they did to him. And this last one, and I, I think this is really important, is you, you're free then to, from even from judging yourself. A sermon point where I was recently, where I was talking about how some things, I think it was last Sunday, as a matter of fact, talking about how some things have to persist and rise up and become greater in order that God can have great victories later, that touched my heart. Don't you understand that some of the things, Paul said this in Romans 7, he said, I don't do the things I want to do, and some of the things I want to do, I don't do. Paul, the guy who they, they carried an old rag piece of his garment or an old rag from his person to somebody else, and they were miraculously healed of paralysis. Anybody here ever done that? And he says, the things I want to do, I don't always do. And the things that I don't want to do, sometimes I do them, even though I shouldn't, right? And he says, but now I understand that if when I sin, it's not me that sins because I've entered into God's rest. I don't judge myself. It's not me that sins, but sin in me. And so he would go to war, and you'd go into war with yourself, and you're saying, man, I feel bad because I said the wrong thing. I did the wrong thing. I wasn't in the right place at the right time. And now you're feeling bad. And if you feel convicted by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's leading you to do something different so that in the future, your life will be more productive in the kingdom. 
But if you feel guilt, that's not of God. That's of the enemy or of you and you're your own worst enemy. That's you fighting against you, right? Your, your conscience doesn't give you guilt. Your conscience makes you wonder. And then you make a judgment and you say, yeah, I am a dirtbag. And then from that, that moment on, you know you're a dirtbag and you're fighting against yourself. And coming into God's rest, knowing the quality of God's rest, knowing the payment that was paid for God's rest, knowing where we're supposed to be, frees us from ever judging my, ourselves. So you don't say, yeah, I'm just a worthless sinner, because that's not true, that's a lie. You're lying about yourself. And you're, you can't fight yourself and win. So stop fighting yourself and fight the demons and evil spirits that are working at you. How do you do it? You do it with spiritual disciplines. You do it by remaining faithful. You do it by trusting in the Lord. You do it by hearing the word and believing. Faith comes by hearing the word. And, and that's how you do it. Now all of this great freedom that we have in the rest is all while, it's all done in Christ. And all while we're overcoming death and evil and sin. It's all while we're overcoming the evils that are in the world, the practical, actual evils that are in the world, with good, right? Be not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The evils that are in us, we overcome with good. Focus on the pure. Stop watching the stuff that's debatable. Stop listening to the, the, the things that are debatable. Stop filling your mind with stuff that you can later sort out and start only filling it with the pure things of God. And when you fill it with the pure things of God you become pure by, by nature. Instead of a sack of crap, you become a sack of glory. And you say, well, I'm not a sack of crap, but I still put stuff in me that, I, that some people that I might even think my pastor might say, that I don't want to tell people that I'm, what I'm observing or participating in because it's crap and I'm putting it in me. So you take a bag of glory and put one ounce of crap in it and it's a bag of crap. Stop. Instead, come into the rest. Don't judge yourself. Be busy overcoming evil with good. Overcoming death in your life. Overcoming covetousness with faithful service and giving. Don't think about the resource that God has given you as something that you want to manipulate, use, get ahead, have a better retirement, have a better car, a better house, a better situation, feel more comfortable that your bills are going to get paid. Listen to me. I'm going to tell you this one absolute fact. When Jesus comes again, and let's, let's just assume for a moment in, in, in God's great glory that a third of the people on the planet believe and are found faithful and go to heaven. The next month, they're all going to get late payment notices on all of their bills. Oh, but they're not going to get them because they're going to be in heaven. But they're going to come to their mailbox just nonetheless. Stop worrying about the things of this life and instead worrying about functioning in the rest that is in Christ. Now, am I talking about squandering the, that which God has given you? No, because you need to be busy overcoming evil with good and overcoming covetousness with faithful service and giving. And this phrase is how the author of Hebrews says that in Hebrews 9, 28. I will read it. You don't have to flip there if you don't want to. It says, all right, I'm reading from 27 for the beginning of the sentence. And it says, and... In as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. Wait for it. To those who eagerly wait, await him. And so you got one phrase in the whole Bible summed up as a Christian. How do you function in the rest of Christ? You eagerly await him. Not being a friend to the world, not distracted by the things of the world, not polluting yourself with the things of the world. You eagerly await him. 
I give you and God gives you and you have given you, if you've accepted Jesus Christ, the truth, the right to go home and walk through your movie collection and throw away, not sell on let go or eBay, but throw away everything that's on there that is not pure. And to go to your Netflix menu options and block out everything that's TVMA because it's basically rated R. And to never, ever, ever buy a ticket again that's rated R. And you say, but you, that's permission to do that. Do I have to do that? Well, it's up to you. Are you going to focus on what's pure? Are you eagerly awake? Do you understand? You could be watching a sex scene in a movie. You might not be showing any flesh, but they're having sex on your TV. And you're like, that's not so bad. When Jesus comes and says, you ready to go? And will you be thinking, I wonder how this story turns out. Or will you be thinking, yes, I'm ready to go. You could be watching Jean-Claude Van Damme breaking somebody's arm back the wrong way and, 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 and nailing 15 guys in a carry-out robbery when Jesus comes again. And will you be wondering how this is going to end? Or will you be saying, yeah, I'm ready to go. If you have come into the rest that is in Jesus, then you get out of bed in the morning thinking, how am I going to serve Jesus today? If he comes before the end of the day, will I be found faithful? Jesus said, but I will the Son of Man when he comes even find faithfulness on the earth. And what he meant was what the author of Hebrews said, which is, will I find you eagerly awaiting my arrival? But he is patient with us that all men may come to repentance to put God back on the throne of their lives, to put them in charge, and perhaps become eagerly awaiting. And if you are eagerly awaiting, then you already understand, as we've talked about today, some of the aspects of the rest that is prepared to you. And the rest says something about the man. And what it says in this case is if you have entered in the rest, it says that you are an eternal being, more than a conqueror, and able to go forward from this moment on, defeating the enemies of God. Not only taking out those who are ahead of you, between you and the promised land, but anybody that might come at you from the side, let's say it this way, anybody and anything that might look at you sideways while you are busy serving the Lord. That's what you're able to handle. That's what the rest of God the peace. And, the, and it is not based on your faithfulness. It is based on God's. And He is faithful. The second thing, and the only other point to be seen in here before the conclusion, is the contrast. And you might have missed it. It's easy to miss. I almost missed it. And the Lord sort of pointed to me to see it. So there's all these boundaries and all this conquesting going on. And the lands across the Jordan are being taken by Moses and the, the, the Israelites in preparation for the taking of the promised land, but Moses will not go in. He'll go up on Pisgah and he'll pass away. And they knew all of this. And when they read that chapter, they got it. And then in the account of the defeat of Og and that Moses uh, gave us in Deuteronomy chapter 3, which was probably a pu two public speeches combined to everything that had happened to them, it talks about how they defeated Og and all the areas around Og and Sihon and everything else. But there's somebody that they didn't defeat. Well, well, that's interesting. There's somebody missing from the list. And because we don't know our geography and so on, who's missing from the list? It's the Ammonites. The Ammonites are missing from the list. Well, the fact that the Ammonites are missing from the list is significant. If you look it up, you use your little Bible dictionary and look up the Ammonites, you'll find a text where it says that... God told Moses to leave the Ammonites alone. Well, now that's interesting because that's a huge contrast between Og and the Ammonites. Well, Og, we don't know his lineage. We know he's not Jewish. We don't know if he came where he came down from or how, where the Rephaim got their start and so on. 
But we know where the Ammonites came from. They're the descendants of Lot. And what God tells Moses is, don't mess with the Ammonites. Leave them alone. Don't lift your swords against them. Don't go out and take their lands because their lands I gave to their ancestor Lot and his descendants. And so there is a a juxtaposition. You remember that word? I brought it up a couple of weeks ago. It's the contrast between the two. There are two peoples raised up here in contrast, Og and the Ammonites. And the only difference between Og and the Ammonites is God gave the land of the Ammonites to the Ammonites when he gave it to Lot generations before. And God gave the lands of Og to the Israelites. You remember the contrast between Sihon and Edom? Moses asked Edom, can we go through your lands? We won't, we won't eat anything. We won't take anything. We won't leave the king's highway. And they said no. And so they went around. They didn't go in there. It wasn't part of, God didn't give them the permission to conquer that land. But then Sihon, they're going to go through Sihon. They send the letter and they say, can we go through there? And Sihon says, no. Raises a huge army. And the next thing you know, Israel, Israel wipes them out completely. That was a juxtaposition between Edom and Sihon. What's the difference? Edom was given their land. They, who are they the descendants of? Does anybody know? Edom is the descendants of Esau. Right? And so the point is, though it doesn't say it in the text, what the Israelites were being taught here and to understand is those to whom God gives the position, those to whom God gives the land, they get the land. They get the position. And the place of rest is the same. Bashan, Babel, the earth under Noah, These places were not given to the people. And then they took them, occupied them in the strength that God had given them, misused them, and then God took them from them. You follow? And so what we're to see here in application out of that is if God has given you that place and you use it for his glory and you don't misuse it, then it's yours. But if God has not given it to you, it's not yours regardless of how you use it. And now you can see why when you're in the rest, when you've believed what Jesus is teaching and you're doing what God would have you to do and you spend your money the way God would have you to spend it and you use your, your body, your eyes, your mind the way that God would have you to use it, why you know you're actually in the rest because God has earned the rest for you, given you the rest, and now you're in it using it the way it's supposed to be used. But if you're in it blowing it off, the truth is you don't actually have it. If you're in it ignoring the value of it, the truth is you don't actually have it. If you're in it not eagerly awaiting Jesus, then you don't actually have it. There's a lot of rich people in the world who have no money. They just don't know it. There's a lot of people in the world who are relatively prominent in society, have nice houses, but they actually have nothing. They just don't know it. They have what's been invested in their lives by God, meant to be used in a way that honors God, and they have nothing. If you want to have whatever it is, you have to give God permission, uh, or give 
give God permission to either give it to you or don't. So let's say you want to get married or you want a, a husband or you want your husband to behave a certain way or your wife to behave a certain way or, or you want your job to go a certain way. or you want The first thing you have to do is give, essentially, control over that in every way possible to God. And then if God gives it to you, if God invests it in you, directs you to use it a certain way, then you actually have it. But if you take it and use it in a way that doesn't honor God, you never actually had it. You will lose it. And then you'll be going, oh, God, why did this happen to me? Just as God said to the... By the way, the fact that Og came out and fought against the Israelites when Israel invaded their land, is that some kind of a sin? I mean, fighting against God's people. You shouldn't do that, right? Aren't people allowed to protect the land in which they live? Yeah, they are. They had every right to do that. And you have every right to look at your money and go, and in the freedom of Christ, you can do that. You look at my money, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to let God have control of my finances. You have every right to do that. You also have every right to suffer the same consequences as Og did. Not entering into the rest. Not actually owning the land. And the, the principle applies in both. And we're in the conclusion. The two principles are the same. Men can neither hold their place nor guarantee their place of rest by size, impact, political stature, prowess, skill and training, nor by the simple fact that they have current ownership. Your house, the deed to your house may be in your name. And you can no longer, you can by no means guarantee that you will maintain control of it. The fact is, if you have not submitted control of it to God, then Satan more likely has control of it than you do. Did you ever wonder about that time and the temptation in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan comes on Jesus after he's been fasting for 40 days and he tempts Jesus and he says, I'll give you control. I'll give you, just worship me. Just worship me. And I'll give you control over all of this. You say, but God is in control of all of that. Satan must have been lying, right? God put the control of the earth in Adam and Eve. And then Adam and Eve submitted it in the hands of the serpent, who may have been Satan disguised, depending on how you read that text exactly. And then God came, sacrificed animals to give them clothing and so on, gave them rules about how they would live together, and sent them out of the Garden of Eden. The land that they had, oh, but... Did the serpent get exiled from the Garden of Eden? Is that in the text? Oh, no. The serpent, who was the craftiest creature in the garden, he was still in the garden after they got exiled. So who wound up with the garden? The serpent. Don't you see? When Satan says, I'll give you all this if you'll just worship me, what he's saying is, they've given it all to me. Those people that you would die for, which I don't know that he knew the nature of Christ, but those people that you love so much, that you've elevated, that your God has elevated to a position of control, they've given it all to me. And now I have control of all of it. And I will give it all to you if you'll just worship me. No person can secure their rest nor their place By size, by political stature, by prowess, by skill and training, nor by the simple fact that they currently have ownership. There's an old saying, and it's sort of a joke, that ownership is nine-tenths of the law. Whoever wound up with it in the end, that's the one who actually owns it. 
but it's sort of tongue-in-cheek because we know that isn't true. God literally owns everything and he's made Jesus the heir of it and when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior we become heirs and joint heirs with him. In Romans chapter 8 verses 15 to 19 it says this, it says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness in our spirit that we are children of God and listen to this, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, if we use this day eagerly awaiting the second coming of Christ, which will actually probably lead to a certain amount of suffering, maybe even to death, physical death, our bodies may die as we are persecuted to the point of death on this earth as Jesus was. And is the servant any better than the master anyway? Wouldn't that be a better way to go out than claiming your rest with no right to it? Writing your name on a deed that says you own a little plot in heaven when in reality you, you know and Christ knows you do not. It isn't about who owns it today. It's about who owns it in eternity. And that is God. And if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are an heir with Jesus who is the Son of God. If indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. A little further, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation, that's every tree and every animal and every star and every planet, waits eagerly. Oh, the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Just as we are supposed to be waiting eagerly for the revealing of Jesus Christ at his second coming, all creation waits eagerly for the revealing of us at Jesus' second coming. Though even the world says you have a right to defend what belongs to you, though even the world says you have a justifiable right to revenge, or even the world says under the right circumstances, well, under the right circumstances you could wind up just like Moses. He justified his actions when he was angry and struck that rock. He scolded the Israelites and said, Must I give water to you again out of this stone? That's what he said. He looked at his fellow human beings, the other supposedly children of God, the nation of Israel, who were only asking for something to drink. Now, mind you, they've been asking for a while in a somewhat annoying fashion. Has that ever happened to you? Have you reached a point of frustration and anger because others are not doing what you would have them to do? Have you then responded in a way that you know would not honor God? Rather than eagerly awaiting the coming of Christ, I submit to you, when, when Arden was about four years old, uh, I had a meeting I was running to, and I was running late, and he was all ready to go, and he was in the kitchen, he asked me for something to drink. Next thing I know, I come in the kitchen, and he's got a little four-ounce cup of Kool-Aid with about 40 ounces of Kool-Aid in it, and it's spread out about five foot wide all over the floor. And I scolded him and I yelled at him for getting his own drink. It took us about two and a half years before he would pour his own drink again. He was completely capable, but he wouldn't do it because I abused my son. And you're going to say, you'd never do that. Yeah, I did. 
I, psycholo I psychologically abused my son. And now I ask him for forgiveness, and I ask the Lord for forgiveness, and I beg God to make me a better parent. And I've not psychologically abused my children as far as I know since that time. But the point is, have you ever done that? Have you been so upset, so frustrated, or somebody got under your skin, somebody even made you bleed or made you sweat, and the next thing you know, you're doing something that would not honor Jesus? Well, if that's so, I suggest you listen to the writer of Hebrews that says you better fear lest you, as they did, fail to come into the rest. Because the rest says something about the man, says something about the woman. It's time we began to eagerly await the coming of the Lord. I don't need a 13 and a half foot by 6 foot wide sarcophagus. The truth is I need a, I need a universe. I need an eternity. And I don't need it for me. I don't need it because I want to watch movies or play games or build stuff. I don't need it because I want to learn how to play the violin or learn another language. I don't need it for any of those reasons whatsoever. I need it because it's going to take that much resources for me to ever learn, to ever get good at, and to ever be someone and something that truly glorifies God. And that's what I want. You need a universe. A megaverse. A million megaverses and a million million years so that the the dirty thing that we once were can be glorifying and honoring God every day. But notice I said that we once were. For if you have heard and you have believed, you have entered the rest. Don't judge yourself. Don't fight against yourself. Don't give up and don't surrender. Live for Jesus daily, overcoming evil with good. Walk in Christ. You want control of something? You want control of where you are, your job, your money, your relationship, the place you live? Don't, don't do it by writing your name on it. Don't get it monogrammed. Don't coerce it or manipulate it or trick it or steal it. Rather, give it to God. And when you give it to God, He just may give it back to you renewed.